0: She was always very careful with, with her stuff. She was very orderly. She was the kind of person who would keep letters that she wrote, copies of letters that she wrote. I had an idea that she was doing that, but I certainly didn't know the extent and the kinds of things that she was keeping in these boxes.
1: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Many of the books that we talk about on the show are very personal, and this book is incredibly personal to its author. It's about a woman in Mexico who journaled about everything in her life until she was murdered. Were there answers to her death inside her diaries and letters? Her sister, Cristina Rivera Garza, wrote a book called Liliana's Invincible Summer. Well, let's start from the beginning. Where did you two grow up? What's the family dynamic like? You know, what's your age difference, all of that?
0: Well, um, we are a a border family. I was born actually on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico borderline in Matamoros, Tamaulipas. And uh, five years later, Liliana was born in Monterrey, Nuevo León, also a city, an industrial city in the north of Mexico. It was only the two of us, two girls. Uh, My father was a scientist. My mother was a a homemaker. We led what I believe to be quite an average middle-class life in Mexico. Uh, We went to school in Central Mexico. We, We moved to Central Mexico when I was about... I don't know, 12 years old. My sister was much younger. We moved to this um, city in the the highest city, actually, in Mexico, Toluca, T-O-L-U-C-A, very close to Mexico City. I very soon moved back to Mexico City to go to the university, and Liliana, who arrived in Toluca at a much younger age and developed um, stronger relationships than I did, she remained there in Toluca for her high school. It was later when it came time for her to choose uh, a major, she chose architecture and she too moved to Mexico City. She was uh, a student at the Autonomous Metropolitan University in Mexico City in Escapuzalco, 20 years old.
1: What would you say your relationship, the intimacy of your relationship was like?
0: There was a, a big age difference between the two of us. Five years, when you are very young, are many, many years. We never shared friends. It was very difficult for us. But what we did share was uh, uh, swimming lessons, the swimming pool. That became uh, a place in which uh, we always knew we were sisters there. We told each other secrets. We kept each other informed about what we were doing. We had great admiration for each other. We exchanged books. I've come to learn now that I've been doing a uh, that I've done my research on around her life, that she read pretty much every single book that I recommended her to read. <laughs> and she passed them along to, to her dearest friends as well. There was a communication, a close one between the two of us, but there were issues too that uh, we didn't talk about. One of those issues that I presume was very difficult for her to actually share was a story that she got into with this boyfriend of hers that she met in Toluca in the late 1980s, Ángel González Ramos.
1: And how old was she when they met?
0: Late 14s, early 15s. In Mexico, we, we have this a second secundaria, secondary school mm-hmm. before going properly to the high school. She met him precisely in the first year of her high school.
1: What do you remember her saying about him, her emotions around him? Was this a big infatuation? And did he seem to reciprocate?
0: It was an interesting story from from the very beginning. It seems that he had to really try very hard to get Liliana's attention. He was... um, a short, stocky, blonde guy, temperamental. And from the very beginning, he was very much obsessed with Liliana. He talked to her friends. He wanted to make sure that they were going to become novios, that they were going to go steady. Right. And Liliana, after thinking about that, after, you know, flirting with other guys, after considering several options, eventually, a year after they met, they became sweethearts. They became obvious
1: When she was a teenager, they were both teenagers?
0: Yeah, he was two years older than her. They were more or less the same age.
1: Did your mother have a sense at all for him? Did she have some sort of uneasiness or did she think that they would be a good match?
0: It was kind of complicated. He, at that point, was very solicitous. He had a car. He was very willing to take her everywhere she wanted to go. She came and picked her up. He was always paying attention to what uh, she wanted to do. So to my mom, to my father, those were good signs. Mm -hmm. We didn't have an idea. We we couldn't read all that attention as control. We read most of that attention as just uh, infatuation, as a loving interest on his side.
1: Was Liliana recording her thoughts, journaling at this age, or did that come a little bit later?
0: No, actually, Liliana was writing from a very young age, mm-hmm. and, uh, and she was writing pretty much about every single thing that was happening to her. She was not necessarily very direct or open about her ideas. At times, she was even cryptic. Uh, But at the beginning, it seems that she was very much uh, interested in him. Uh, She had several entries in a diary indicating that she was very happy and that she got to really, really like this guy. Uh, Something happened, though, pretty soon, and some months after they started, started to go steady. And that's something that happened. It's something that is uh, something that Liliana never quite described, at least not openly. It it was something that she expressed as a way of loving her that she disliked, a way of uh, connecting or trying to be with her that she didn't find either appealing. She just said, I I just don't like that. I don't like the way she she wants to love me. And so that's how I came to learn that there was something complicated there, something that she was trying to get at and not not necessarily elaborating further on that.
1: But she went on to university, right, to major in architecture. So this was a long-term relationship. Were they together when she went to school?
0: That was a major issue, too, because she was uh, admitted at this university in Mexico City. He was not. Mm. She moved from uh, that industrial city in central Mexico, Toluca, to live on her own for the first time in Mexico City, a sprawling metropolis. And she was obviously meeting new people, experiencing Uh, new facets of life, getting interested, really passionate about her field. And he was not. And it was then that he became even more controlling, increasingly aggressive, too.
1: And this was the only relationship she had between sort of 15, 16, up until what ends up happening. Is that right? Had she broken up with him at
0: any point? They broke up several times, especially when Liliana was living already in Mexico City. She would try to go out with uh, some other friends. She developed close relationships with at least two of them. One of them, Raul Espino Madrigal, actually was profoundly in love with her. And uh, Mm. one of the most tender testimonies that I was witness to precisely came from him. So she was... She was, and she told this to all her friends. She was trying to get out of that relationship, but she didn't know how to do it. Ángel González Ramos was very insistent. He was carrying a gun. Liliana confided uh, one of her friends that he had told her that if she left him, uh, he was going to kill herself. Hmm. What I saw there is a woman... Just growing very rapidly, mm-hmm. discovering the, a world that she was really passionate about, and a man who, who wouldn't let her go.
1: And you and your parents didn't have a sense for how disturbing their relationship was unraveling at this point before What Happens, Happens?
0: This is the late 20th century This is the late 80s, and I think all across the world, not only Mexico, it was very difficult to talk about domestic violence, even more difficult to talk about violence between just a young couple. Yeah. In addition to that, in Mexico, us, around the world, a lot of this kind of behavior was framed within the narrative of romantic love. Passion. Passion, jealousy, Mm -hmm. all the kinds of things that now we would be very worried about and we see red flags all over. I don't think this was the case in the 1990s. I think Liliana knew that something was not right. I think some of the friends, closer friends of Liliana... We're aware that this guy was not necessarily the kind of person that Liliana was going to be growing up with. Mm -hmm. They never saw any incidents of violence, for example. So they knew something was off. But none of us, including Liliana, I think, knew uh, how dangerous the situation was.
1: So tell me about the events that lead up to July 16th, 1990. When was the last time you had spoken to her before this happens?
0: Well, uh... I have to tell you, I had moved to the United States before then. In 1988, mm-hmm. I moved to to Houston to I, I enrolled into a master's degree and later a PhD. So I was very much living in the United States while this story was developing. So Liliana would tell me about what was happening. But taking a look at the letters that we exchanged at that point, we were mostly talking about what was happening in our worlds, about mm. shared interests, about movies. And she was not necessarily talking about him. In the years previous to this 1990, Liliana was really eagerly embracing life. She had uh, traveled with uh, her friends to places like Oaxaca in Southern Mexico. She had become a a teaching assistant to a professor in her university. Hmm. She was reading uh, all kinds of stuff, not necessarily architecture-related. So it seems that the freedom that she was so insistent about, the freedom that she really cherished, was becoming increasingly annoying to Ángel. That was a situation that a couple of months prior to that, July 16th, I see a woman trying to find her way in the world of loving and not loving these person who had been very important in her life. She was developing new interests and it was, it was becoming increasingly complicated just to balance that situation.
1: Let's talk about what happens with her murder from your point of view. When do you find out anything after July 16th? And how do you find it out?
0: Well, that was a a story very hard to put together. And I had to read the newspaper articles that were published about it. I had to, I talked to, to Liliana's friends about how things developed the morning of, of July 16th. According to most witnesses, what had happened is that Liliana had been working that Sunday, July 15th in a university project with This friend of his, Manolo, a classmate too, and a guy who had been in love with her in the past. It seems like they were at the initial stages of a new relationship. Mm. They've been together the whole day working on this project. And at about 10 o'clock at night, he left. Liliana had asked him to stay with her because she was feeling lonely. And he said, no, I had to go to my mom. I promised my mom that I would get there. I'll pick you up tomorrow morning, early in the morning, so that we can take this project to class. That was at 10 o'clock. According to most witnesses, what happened is that Angel Gonzalez Ramos arrived at around 1 o'clock in the morning jumped over the fence, according to some. According to others, he borrowed a broom to open the gate, Mm -hmm. the main gate of of the place where Liliana was living. In any case, what I'm trying to say is that he was not invited or expected that night. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what happened during those hours, but by five o'clock, he left the place. Manolo came by in the morning at about 7.30 and realized that Liliana was dead. According to the scientific report, she was suffocated. She was renting a room in this larger home. Mm -hmm. Uh, The owner of the home, uh, Manolo called the owner of the home. Both of them very quickly called uh, the police. The police came. The police started to call witnesses, friends of Liliana, detectives and investigators uh, showed up to the scene. And meanwhile, my parents were traveling. They were in Europe at that point, and I was in the United States. So they were trying very hard to locate either of us so that we could come to Mexico City immediately. I was, uh, as I said, in Houston, and I received the visit of members of the Mexican consulate. they knocked knock on my door and that was very strange. You know, people don't come unannounced in the United States usually. So I knew something was wrong. And uh, as soon as they said her name, I knew that the news were not good. They told me very succinctly what had happened, and uh, I immediately called my family family that I have in Houston. We got together bought tickets and and we left for Mexico City as soon as we could
1: and when you arrived in Mexico City, what was the explanation? Where were they in the investigation at that point?
0: This is something that I actually mentioned in the book when I was uh, on the plane on the flight going to Mexico City. Mm-hmm. i was not given any kind of explanation. I was told that that my sister was no longer with us. And I was thinking, what could have happened? What could have happened? And then there was this point, an uncle of mine said, the only thing I wish for her is that she had a a true and beautiful love in her life. Mm -hmm. And at that point, something really uh, downed me. And I was thinking, that's what happened. So I must have known something. I must have remembered something because that was my first conclusion. So as soon as we arrived in Mexico City, we were taking to the place where where Liliana was. Uh, She was no longer in the house where she was killed. We had to organize taking her from Mexico City to Toluca and organize all the family members who were coming. It was very, very confusing. And in fact, it's been thanks to the interviews that I've been conducting with friends and family members that I've been able to remember much of what had happened at that point. I really didn't remember much of it. Everything happened very fast. There were many, many people involved. And the only thing that we were told was that there was a strong suspicion that Ángel González Ramos, Liliana's ex-boyfriend, that he was a person that the police was looking for as a main person of interest in the case.
1: There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Did you and your family have faith in the police in Mexico City that they would follow through on all of this? Because I'm assuming that was the main suspect, like you've said.
0: Mm -hmm. We had our doubts, uh, definitely. Now, looking at the records, though, what I realize is that they did what they were supposed to do at the beginning. And then I suppose my interpretation is that they just didn't consider this to be An important case. So they, after a couple of months of doing what they were supposed to be doing, you know, they just quit. They didn't continue.
1: Because he vanished, is that right?
0: He escaped, yeah. We didn't know exactly where he had gone, but we knew that he was no longer in Toluca, and perhaps he was no longer in Mexico. At what
1: point do you discover all of this material? And when does it start clicking in your head that this would be a book that would shine a light on an issue that's clearly been in the dark all over the world, but in Mexico too?
0: Well, one of the major obstacles to even think or to go through this experience is that when this kind of violence gets framed as a passionate crime, Pretty much, this is a way of intrinsically blaming the victim and accelerating the perpetrator. So it's very hard to talk about. It's a story that is very hard to write about in the language of patriarchy, the system that is both causing the problem and silencing the problem at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you have to do a lot to language, a lot to, to the narratives that we live by in order to truly honor the victims in this story. So it was very hard for me, both as a a sister, as a human being, and as a writer, to even think about the possibility of writing this story. But over the last 20, 30 years, there has been a very strong feminist movement in Mexico throughout Latin America, women's mobilizations in general, placing a greater emphasis on gender violence and specifically on femicide, the most lethal of these violences. So um, I think all these years after the fact, I found myself now with the language that I needed to tell the story. And also very importantly, I had been thinking about reopening the case since more or less 2019. But then it came 2020 and uh, the COVID pandemic hit us. Mm -hmm. And then we all knew that we could die at any moment. And at that point, I knew that I needed to write this book, that this was a book that I didn't want to die without having written it. And that there was a a commitment on my side, a responsibility that I had to tell my sister's story because otherwise she would have been erased by the violence that took her from us.
1: Tell me about the research. So we know the journal entries, anything that your sister's written, you had access to and you interviewed friends and neighbors. Were the police at all helpful? Were court records helpful? Did
0: you want to learn more about Ramos? Many things happened at the same time. I knew that we had boxes with Liliana's belongings in our home. Uh, they had been there for three years. No one had dared to touch them. Wow. I came down in January of 2020 to my parents' house looking, in fact, for some kind of date book, some kind of address book that might help me locate Liliana's friends in Mexico City. I didn't know their names. I didn't know if they were alive. I didn't know if they were still living in Mexico City. I didn't know what had happened to them. So my husband and I started to do all, we became these, these detectives. We were trying to locate people. We were trying to gather as much evidence as we were able to do that took a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I'm really very thankful to to my husband, Saul Hernandez Baragas, who really, I mean, he's a visual artist, but now we know that he is, he could be a really good detective too. (laughs) He was the one who located most of uh, Liliana's friends And once he was able to do that, I proceeded to talk with them to have long phone interviews, which I transcribed. I didn't record any of that. I transcribed them. I talked to them very openly about what I was doing. I told them that I was going to be sharing with them the drafts of this book and that they would have a say in whatever I I was writing. And that if they didn't agree with what I was writing, that at any point I could stop. It was their work. Uh, what I really wanted to be able to bring into PAGE. And the same happened with my parents. I Obviously, we had had many conversations about this, specifically in the latter years. And uh, they also got a chance to read the draft before I even sent it to the press. I think it was very important to me just to create that trust between us, knowing that the final goal was not only to uncover and to share Liliana's life, but also that at that point I was very much trying to catch the killer. I worked with the police. I hired a lawyer because it was very hard to to even get the the police case. Many years had passed that some members of the um, general attorney's office, uh, some workers there had told me, well, you know, it's been such a long time. We might have destroyed that file. Hmm. So all these issues really propelled me into writing the book. This is a book, by the way, that I I wanted to write from the very beginning of my writing career. And it's a book that I tried to write several times prior and I failed utterly every single time that I tried to write it. But when I actually came across her own writings, this affective archive, as I'm calling it, I knew that I finally was going to be able to do it. I had the time, I had all the materials I had all these other voices around, and I knew that this time I was strong enough also personally to go through the experience of bringing her life back to us.
1: But it must have been incredibly painful to hear her voice and, you know, to know her so well and to be able to sort of visualize it. I'm assuming she wrote about very difficult things involving Ramos at the time, or did she not?
0: She did. It was very painful, no doubt about that. Even uncovering, you know, her talents, her wisdom, her humor, even the happy things were painful because she's no longer with us, right? Yeah. Obviously, this is the most difficult word that I have ever written, but at the same time, just having the opportunity to get so close to her and to be able to recreate this kind of community within which she is very much alive. I think that compensates also for the pain.
1: Your parents, I can't imagine, thought participating in this book was easy. What do you think is the most difficult thing that you either asked them or that they felt compelled to explain to you in the book?
0: I had no idea how they were going to be reacting when I first approached the issue. When I told them I was trying to do this, I was incredibly careful. For many years, it was very difficult for us to even utter her name. So I had no idea, really. When I I say I had no idea, I'm very honest. I didn't know what they were going to think. And I was quite surprised when their very first reaction, both of them were not only willing, but also eager to participate in the whole process, the legal process and the writing process as well. I think for them, it was as important as it was for me to take Liliana's life out of that passionate crime narrative, to restitute her voice and her perspective, and to tell the story of her life according to her own uh, words and values. And I think that that's, uh, that's been incredibly helpful too for all of us as a family, just to be able to tell a story that honors her life, that pays attention to the way in which she died, but that that is not only concentrated on that. This is something that that happens very very often when violence is involved. The whole story evolves and develops around the violent act, and at times we forget that there are entire complicated, complex, beautiful lives, too. So this is something that that I'm trying to do very consciously in this book.
1: I can't imagine that families don't have some level of feeling of, I don't know if regret's the right word, but just a mourning that they would feel over the circumstances, like as if they could have stopped it, which I think probably everyone knows, would not be the case. I don't think you could stop this.
0: Uh, You are right. I think experts on on this kind of violence would agree that families that go through these experiences are very hard on on themselves. They blame themselves. And I think this is something that happened to us. Uh, There is a lot of guilt and there is a lot of shame in a mourning process that actually never quite begins. So because if, if the story cannot be told... If you cannot wrest this story from the patriarchal narrative that essentially involves silencing, then you cannot mourn properly. Right. So uh, I think that understanding the mechanisms going through all these different witnesses, looking at the story from as many perspectives as I was able to do through interviews and archival research and field research and all that, I think it finally gives us an opportunity to articulate the story in a way that did not involve blaming the victim. And certainly did not involve exonerating the perpetrator. The femicider, as we say uh, in Spanish, is femicida. Interestingly enough, there is not a word in English that fully translates uh, this one, Femicida. So um, I'm getting to say lately the word Femicider, which is, uh, you know, it would be the closer translation. The word is not necessarily in vogue or in use in the American English but I think that as, as we see domestic violence cases grow also in the United States, even enough to be called a silent epidemic, I think that the language has to adapt to. Mm-hmm. And perhaps just by calling the killer a femicider, we will be contributing to create more awareness about uh, a violence that is is pretty much a problem uh, across the world.
1: Well, let's talk about your pursuit of Ramos. Did you have help from the police in Mexico City 30 years later? Or do you still feel like the same attitude about femicide is pervasive within the police department in Mexico all over the country?
0: Yeah, well, look, fortunately or unfortunately, the number of femicides is growing so much in Mexico. The data is well known about 10 women are killed in Mexico on a daily basis. And there is now uh, a unit of femicides specifically devoted to femicides in Mexico City. And the unit is uh, led by a lawyer that I admire very much. Sayuri Herrera, that's her name. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I've had long conversations with her that have been extremely useful. That doesn't mean that other areas of General Attorney's Office are equally concerned or even efficient about justice. When I published the book, I created a Gmail account. When I published the book in Spanish, I should say. In every interview that I I gave, I mentioned that I was going to be using this Gmail account to receive tips or any kind of information that might lead us to this Ángel González Ramos. Eventually, I learned one of these anonymous sources sent me a link that took me to a funeral, a digital funeral, of someone whose name was Michel Angelo Giovanni. This link contained pictures from Michel Angelo Giovanni, who had died, drowned in Southern California on May the 2nd, 2020. The pictures belong to him, in my view. I communicated with the police in Mexico, because uh, regardless of what I believed, this is something that they should be able to confirm. I was told that they were going to do all they could in order to confirm this information. This happened more or less a year and a half ago. And uh, to this day, I have not received any kind of information regarding this case.
1: Did you reach out to Ramos's family in Mexico after this happened, or was that something you just wanted to stay away from?
0: I wanted to stay away from that.
1: Mm -hmm. Because it was part of the active investigation.
0: Exactly. It was an active investigation, and I didn't want to interfere with that. So, what's the next step?
1: Is there a next step if we are assuming that Giovanni is Ramos and he is dead, never seeing justice for Liliana's murder in that way? Yeah. If we assume that, is there any bit of closure for your family at all?
0: That's a, such a good question, and and I'm glad I mentioned earlier. Sayuri Herrera, the lawyer, because once I learned about this possibility that the killer had died, I was, as you can imagine, very distraught. I was uh, that was a situation that was not expecting. I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. So I talked to Sayuri Herrera, and something that she said, and for me, it was very important to hear is that there are other aspects of of justice. Justice is not only punitive. Mm. In the law of victims, this is a law that exists in Mexico, it's equally important, the issue of memory and truth and the restitution of that. And I think, obviously, we're not going to get Liliana back, but it's extremely important just to be able to have the truth, and in this case, her truth, her perspective, her view, on this whole story, and and for us to be able to fully mourn her death and to build a collective memory of Liliana Rivera Garza among us. This is not a minor death. This is where a mourning that was forcibly silenced has become a collective practice. So the more people remember Liliana, the more her name is pronounced in public spheres in life. The more she is, she remains with us, and I think that's very important for me, for my family, for those of us who believe that the dead continue, that some part of them continue to be materially close to us.
1: I understand. I think now the impact of the book on you and your family, and you personally, as this experience of becoming closer with your sister, and that, like you said, putting her name out there so that there can be some healing. Was there any unexpected benefit of this book, do you think, as far as the narrative that we've been talking about, where you actually see people and hear people saying this book could make a difference in this country?
0: I was not expecting that, to be honest with you. And I've been so pleasantly surprised by the way in which young women, specifically, but in general, readers of the book have embraced Liliana. Uh, She's been part of uh, International Women's Day demonstrations. Her name is being graffitied on different places on walls of Mexico City. Not long ago, I visited Guadalajara in Mexico, uh, where a very important book fair takes place every year, and students from different high schools having read the book, organized a demonstration, a procession of sorts throughout the city, just uh, honoring her name and honoring her life. And so I think she would have been very happy just to learn that her experience might be illuminating to others, that might help others to articulate their own stories, to go through experiences that are very hard to enunciate. And so... Feeling that embrace, that embrace that is very real, I think has been um, more than I expected. In my
1: writing, when I write books, I write about crime and history. And a requirement for me is I have to have memoirs and journals and letters to feel closer to the people, to really be able to sort of rebuild their world. I sometimes feel like I'm invading their privacy. And these are people who have died a hundred or more years ago. Did you struggle with that when you were piecing together this book, that there were things that you were reading that clearly no one was meant to read except for Liliana to a certain extent? And for me, I try to pack those feelings away because I feel like the greater good of what my book would do needs this to resonate with people, needs these details. Did you feel like that? Did you really struggle at all with publishing any of the things
0: that you found? That is such an important question. Thank you for asking. I think it's it's always very difficult to write about violence precisely because it's such a slippery terrain. It's very easy to banalize To make it banal, right? It's very easy to put so much emphasis on the power of the perpetrators that you render your victim voiceless and passive, right? There are so many ways of getting this thing wrong. And I think that requires a lot of ethical attention. Yeah, I had to consider all those possibilities. And that's the reason why when I was even interviewing people, I told them I was only going to write whatever they felt comfortable with. That uh, I would never betray them. That, that was essentially my, my message to them. And I think that was, um, that was a conversation that I had with my sister while I was writing. This book, I I essentially felt her presence very close to me. I I felt her, you know, her head over my shoulder, kind of saying, "Oh no, that is that is so cheesy. You don't write that." <laughs> she she was always against this kind of excessive expression of uh, sentimentality and things like that. <laughs> she doesn't like flourishes. Yeah, exactly. That's another reason why I asked my parents too. That uh, because this is this is her life, but this is our life as well. is the life of a community. And so I tried to make sure as much as I could that I was serving the book as such, but mostly that I was serving this community that was surrounding Liliana and protecting Liliana as well. I, I wanted her to be the true protagonist of this book. And that's the reason why my presence in the book is very discreet I didn't want to editorialize Liliana. I didn't want to assume that I knew more than she knew at that time. But at the same time, I didn't want to leave her all alone by herself in the book. So I had to incorporate myself just in order to be as vulnerable as she was becoming with the very writing of the book. So those were my ways of, of dealing with, with the, this issue that is, that is so important. The one that it's an ethical issue. Mm-hmm. And to me, both uh, the aesthetics of the book and the ethics of the book are interwoven. They're equally relevant. So. Asking that question was what I did every single day that I wrote the book. And it is embedded in every single paragraph of that book and the selection of words, uh, the the scenes that made it into the book and the ones that didn't, because some didn't, of course. And uh, all that selection, it's very much related to the care with which I wanted to approach Liliana now.
1: Oftentimes when I'm reading a journal or a memoir or something and it's going into my book from the protagonist, from the main person in the book, there's a phrase or an anecdote or something that just echoes with me. Was there anything like that in her writings that sort of echoed to you as the theme that resonated with you as sort of, it's like these lines are what define my sister and her vivaciousness or the theme of her life?
0: She spoke of freedom very, very often. Freedom in a new kind of love. She said it several times. Other kind of love should be possible. And I think those two components, freedom and love, are what she's leaving us with after reading the book. The importance of both.
1: If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.